school. Should we pray? Father, we want to thank you for this fresh opportunity now to hear your word. And we pray that we'd be able to understand it better and that um, you would speak to our hearts. Reveal yourself to us, we ask, as we come to your word. Glorify your name. And we thank you so much for the mighty name of the Lord Jesus that we can run to for salvation. Amen. God bless America. It is one of the most surprising things as a Brit when you move to America to see how frequently and how commonplace it is for people to say these words, God bless America. I think it's terrific, actually. Uh, you know, you basically can't be president without saying these words. No president would give a speech without finishing his speech with God bless America. You can't be a congressional politician. Uh, even community leaders and adverts proclaim God bless America. And just think what a sensation it would cause if Gordon Brown stood up at the Labour Party conference and said, and finally, God bless Great Britain. Can you imagine what would happen? Oh, the pages of the newspapers would be full of stuff. That's how far back Britain is. That even the mention of God would cause outrage. We bought our plane tickets to the United States on September the 11th, just before the terrorist attack of people putting planes into buildings. And so when we actually finally arrived in America in, in January, four months later, it was amazing to us to see American flags everywhere. It was as if this terrorist atrocity just brought back to the surface the need to uh, express solidarity as a nation. Everywhere there were flags and everywhere there were billboards saying, God bless America. It was amazing to me. And everybody jumped on this. One of my favorite signs was this sign, free phones, God bless America. <laughs> That's the bounty of this country. But what would it mean for God to bless a nation, whether that would be Britain or America? What is the blessed life? Is it about living in peace without the threat of terrorism? Advertisers want us to believe it's by owning more things. Magazines tell us it's about being beautiful or uh, having the perfect body or having the perfect sex life. Companies tell us it's about having fulfilling jobs with them. Universities tell us it's by having their marvelous uh, certificates and degrees that they want to uh, give you if you'll stay there for three or four years and give them bunches of money. The strange thing is, is that while many ask God to bless us, we really consider what God thinks the blessed life looks like. And so tonight we're just completing a little mini study, really, of what the blessed life looks like according to God. We began in a couple of weeks ago looking at Psalm number 1. And so logically we're going to turn to its complement, Psalm 2, this evening. So you might want to open your Bibles to that. I think these two psalms have been placed quite deliberately as the opening to this great songbook of God's people. You can tell this by looking at the start and finish. I'm sorry, I don't have the page number for Psalm 2. Someone has shouted out from the NIV? 
543, if you're not familiar around the Bible, open it up about halfway, page 543, you'll be there. And if you're there, you'll see um, Psalm 1 begins, Blessed is the man. And look to the end of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There, there, there are the bookends of these opening psalms into the whole book. Psalm 1 tells us that the blessed life has to do with our response to God's word. Psalm 2 tells us that the blessed life has to do with our response to God's king. That's what we're going to consider this evening. For this is the, the king's psalm. Now let's read it. Uh, I'm going to read the English Standard Version. I'm terribly torn, you know. I've spent the last seven and a half years studying the ESV Bible translation. And now I'm, going to, I'm trying to do the morning in, in, in NIV. I'm trying, but I couldn't do it tonight. So we're going to stick to the ESV. So you can still follow along. It's basically the same. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And this is God's word. This is really the king's psalm. A psalm directed to earthly kings about God's appointed king. This is a very political psalm, isn't it? It's about authority and power. Amongst all the different rulers and kings of the world, the question is, who is the king? The capital K king. Who will bow to whom? That's what's being considered here. This is about politics really in ferment and uproar. For the kings, the small K kings, are against the capital K king. Look at uh, verse 2 there. The nations are raging. The, The peoples are plotting a rebellion. They're taking counsel together. They have a determined stance against the king of Israel. This phrase, the anointed one, verse 2, was a term used for the kings of Israel. It was the Hebrew word Messiah, the Greek word is Christ, and both terms simply mean this, the anointed one, 
the kings of Israel were, were appointed in a very particular way. If you read the, uh, the book of, uh, books of Samuel in the Old Testament, you'll see that God sent his prophet Samuel to go and, and appoint the first two kings of, of Israel. That was Saul and David. And in both instances, uh, Samuel took a flask of oil and he poured it over their heads. And, and they were anointed with oil by God's spokesman, the prophet, to be really the kings of Israel. Their formal coronation came later. And really, the main thing was that God had sent his prophet and declared, you are the king. You're the anointed one. This strange ceremony underlies that, that, that their appointment was a direct appointment by God. Many a leader since then has, has loved to have that put on them, but they were all lying. But these men were not. God, they, were, they were God's appointment. And to rebel against the king of Israel, according to the psalmist, is to rebel against the God of Israel, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. To rebel against the kings of Israel is to rebel against the Lord God. And so these first three verses are not just about human rebellion, are they, against an earthly king. They're about an earthly rebellion against the heavenly king. The king of the universe. Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here's not simply a political plot to oust an unpopular leader. Watch this space and see that happen in Britain, I think. Human rulers and kings are plotting against this Jewish king and are setting themselves actually against God. They're saying, we don't want you, God. We don't want your king. And really, that is the cry of all rebellious human hearts, isn't it? Against God. We get scared at the thought that, of God ruling over our lives. We don't want that. We know it's going to involve change, and we want to keep things our way. And his rules and his commands seem to be like chains and shackles. And the cry of the human heart has been the same. We don't want you, God. Let us cast... Uh, away these cords of God's rule over our lives. Let us do our own thing. And that's what's going on here in Psalm 2. Now, how is King David, who the New Testament tells us, wrote this psalm? That's what we read in Acts 4. How is he feeling about this situation? Imagine if you were the king. This is your job. You're the king of a tiny nation called Israel and you're confronted by uh, a political situation where there are many nations and countries united together, counseling, they're getting together, and they're plotting how these nations together will bring you down, will bring down your kingdom, will take you down. How are you going to react? Well, look at, look at King David. He's as cool as a cucumber. Uh, in this psalm, he appears completely undaunted, doesn't he, by such a prospect. He surveys the scene and he asks the question of verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That's quite astonishing confidence, don't you think? Because he knows they're actually plotting against the Lord, if they're plotting against the Lord's anointed. In human terms, these kings of the earth are impressive, they're powerful, uh, they're overwhelming, but against the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, well, they are just laughable. And in verses 4 to 6, we move from the raging perspective of the earthly kings to the heavenly perspective of the divine king. In verses 4 to 6, 
How's this looking from God's perspective? Well, this show of force is pathetic. It's derisory. Verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He looks down at this rebellion and he goes, oh, that's so funny. That is hilarious. Now, what can we compare this to? Uh, is it the first year high school rugby team taking on Edinburgh Rugby Club? Well, that doesn't even get close, does it? Maybe it's more like walking along and coming across um, 20 ants. And if you could listen into ants and you had the ability of Dr. Doolittle to hear what ants had to say, you get your ear down close and the little ants are saying, we're going to get him. Let's take him down. If we all do it together, we'll bring him down. And you'd, you'd look at this and you'd just go, ha, ha, ha. It's over. Like that. But even that is not close, is it? Here is the God who created the gigantic cosmos by speaking a few words. He is the one who controls uh, the very spin of the galaxies and, and, the, and all the might of the earthly kings is as nothing compared to him. He doesn't even have to lift a finger. He merely speaks. Do you, do you know why God sends puny preachers like me to proclaim his word? The truth is, it is out of his kindness and his grace. You see, if God was actually to speak directly to us this evening, this building would barely be standing. And we would be cowering under these pews. When God spoke uh, to Israel at Mount Sinai, they were so terrified that they begged Moses, please, stop this. We can't take any more. You, you, you speak to God. We can't handle God. And so God's grace is such that you get a puny voice like mine because you could not bear to hear him directly. And God's terrifying pronouncement is that their rebellion is empty and doomed. God has spoken. Verse 6, I have set my king on Zion. Another name for Jerusalem my holy hill. They've set themselves up against the Lord and his anointed, but God has set his king as the ruler. So let's look at verses 7 to 9. David speaks here of the divine decree that established his, his kingdom. I will tell of the decree, David says. And then David quotes what God declared to him through the prophet Nathan. So keep a finger in um, the Psalms and turn back to 2 Samuel chapter Seven. I can tell you the page number in my ESV Bible, but that's no good to you. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Anyone got a page number? 310. Thank you, 310. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. The context is that David has offered to build a permanent temple for God in Jerusalem. Now God declines the offer but says that David's son will build the temple, and then God makes the most amazing promise to King David. While, while David says, I want to build a house for you, God tells him something amazing in verse uh, 12. When your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It is a stunning promise, isn't it? It is a stunning decree that God should say to a human king, your kingdom will be established forever. That's the divine decree that David is recalling in Psalm 2. This is the basis of his confidence in the face of rebellious kings and army. He's God's man. He's God's appointments. God has decreed his security. And not only his, but all his descendants will become king. On the day of the coronation, those promises made to David become theirs. They too will become sons of God. That phrase, son of God, refers firstly not to being divine, but being a king in the line of David. And as David reflects on this decree that his throne will be established forever, the reason that the Lord's anointed um, only has to... All he has to do is ask God and all the nations of the earth will be given to him as his heritage. See, this promise that he will have a kingdom that will be established forever is a promise that all the nations of the earth will be given to him as his inheritance. The very ends of the earth will belong to him because he's God's appointed king. And because of that, all resistance is useless, Psalm 2 says. His enemies will be like thin pottery that will be easily broken up by a rod of iron being smashed upon them. Now, in the light of the divine decree, the final part of this psalm is a summons to all earthly kings. It's a very logical end, verses 10 to 12. The kings are summoned, verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Come to the anointed one. Kiss his ring. Bow before him. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here we see a gracious invitation to rebellious kings to think very hard about their response. Now, your, your recent conference about my demise has been very interesting to watch. Now, I'm going to give you a fantastic offer. Uh, why don't you just abandon it all and just kiss the scepter of my throne and we'll call it good. You just bow the knee. That's the wise thing to do, is to abandon this foolish rebellion. It would be far wiser to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The wise thing is to submit to God by submitting to God's king. Don't rebel against him. Actually, take refuge in him. The smart money is on God's king because God's backing him. So find refuge in the king. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So here is the king's psalm. There it is. It's an astonishing psalm, isn't it? And the first thing I want us to see is that for hundreds of years, this was the ridiculous psalm. A ridiculous psalm. Now let me explain by analogy. Uh, very recently, we just had the last night at the proms at the Royal Albert Hall. I didn't actually watch it this time around. I mean, I haven't watched it for about 10 years. But as I recall, when you watch it, it's as if they give the tickets to all the mad, eccentric Englishmen. 
Is that still the case? They all wear their loony Union Jack outfits, and, and they get there, and they have a marvelous uh, singing time. And they sing wonderful, eccentric songs like this. Land of hope and glory, mother of the free, how shall we extol thee who are born of thee? Wider still and wider shall thy bounds be set. God who made thee mighty, make thee mightier yet. And another classic, Rule Britannia. Have you ever read the words for Rule Britannia? Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Britons never will be slaves. The haughty tyrants ne'er shall tame. All their attempts to bend thee down, all their attempts to bend thee down will but arouse, arouse thy generous flame. But work their woe and their renown. Rule Britannia. It's very stirring, isn't it? Now these songs made a lot of sense maybe about 100 years ago when the sun never, sat on, uh, never set on the British Empire, when Britain ruled big chunks of land on both sides of the equator. But let's face it, those days are long gone, aren't they? We're not a superpower anymore. In fact, these words sound, don't you think, a bit ridiculous? A bit optimistic? I think the government's very graciously announcing that we'll maybe... Uh, instead of having four nuclear submarines, we'll, we'll have three just to help reduce the amount in the world. And of course, the real reason is we can't afford it. We can't afford the new shiny tridents. So I tell you what, let's, let's decrease it. Because we're not the superpower anymore. And these songs are just faintly ridiculous. And you see, for most of Israel's ancient history, Psalm 2 would have sounded just the same. The glory days for Israel happened under King Solomon, David's son. And that was the time where they ruled the most land and enjoyed peace and prosperity. But then, a civil war, and everything went downhill. Two nations uh, came out of one. The northern kingdom finally conquered by Assyria and carted away into captivity. And not long after that, the southern kingdom trashed as well. And so by the end of the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, this psalm just sounds plain ridiculous. For the descendants of David, who rule, rules as king uh, at that time, was deposed, and he was a prisoner in a faraway table of Babylon. The king eventually allowed him to eat at his table, mainly to show to his guests how many people he conquered, I guess. But still, as the Old Testament comes to a close, those promises of God made to King David that in his line there would be one who would have an everlasting kingdom, one who would possess the earth for the nations as his heritage, are still there. And this is exactly where the New Testament kicks in. For in the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, this has become the fulfilled psalm. Matthew kicks off his gospel, and he's very keen that we understand the family tree of Jesus, doesn't he? Matthew 1, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So turn with me now to uh, our New Testament reading today of Acts chapter 4. See, following the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we find the disciples in the, in the temple courts of Zion in Jerusalem. And they are preaching that Jesus is the anointed one that has been promised. And guess what? The Jewish authorities are not happy. And they seize the disciples and they warn them not to speak any more about Jesus or they'll be punished. 
and they get released, and immediately they go to a prayer meeting. And here is their prayer in verse 24 of Acts chapter 4. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They see in the events that they had witnessed with their own eyes, the fulfillment of this psalm, of Psalm 2. Jesus is the true king appointed by God to rule, and the empty plotting of the kings and leaders had been futile. They had done their worst. And then he was raised from the dead into an everlasting kingdom. The resurrection of Jesus proclaims him to be the Christ. This amazing promise. From your line there will be a a king who will have a forever kingdom. Well, it kept falling flat, didn't it? Because the kings kept dying. It's hard to rule when you're dead. And they kept dying. Oh, it's not... We need a king who's not going to die. And Jesus is raised from the dead to establish an everlasting kingdom. That's exactly how the Apostle Paul understands the resurrection in Acts chapter 17. Jesus has been proclaimed as the ultimate king over every earthly king and authority. The apostles taught that Jesus has the total right to rule over everyone, over everyone in this room. The resurrection is the warning to us all that we should bow the knee to King Jesus. Turn over to Acts chapter 17 and see this. Acts chapter 17 and verse 29. Paul's addressing the intelligentsia of the ancient world there in Greece, in the Areopagus. And this is what he says to them as the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. Acts 17, verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. See, I want you to see tonight that the message of Psalm 2 is incredibly relevant for us tonight. God has appointed his king and judge of all the world. And we are accountable to him. You personally will be held accountable before Jesus Christ. He will be our judge. There are only two types of people here in the room. There are those who are rebelling against Jesus as their king. And there are those who have taken refuge under his lordship. And this is a solemn psalm 
of warning, isn't it? See, let's turn back to Psalm 2. And verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. As I read the New Testament, it is clear that Jesus is coming back again and he will return as judge. And all rebellion will be crushed, will be put down. Those who are staying, uh, living their lives in rebellion against Jesus will be crushed. That's what verse 9 says. And it is a solemn warning to us today. If you keep living your life opposed to Jesus, ultimately you will be broken. And this is a loving psalm. It is warning us of the foolishness of rejecting the Son of God. The blessed life, according to God, is to be found in those who have taken refuge in His King. The death of Jesus has made this uh, amnesty, this way of forgiveness possible so that rebels can be fully forgiven and accepted because Jesus has paid the price to cover all our past misdeeds. And so I want to say to you tonight, if you are still a rebel, be wise today. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The life of blessing is here to be had. All you need to do is humbly repent and run for refuge in Jesus. It's all you have to do. I think the psalm really has a lot to say to us today as well. If we've already accepted Jesus as King and Savior, as verse 8 says, I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's what God promises his King. And that's why post-resurrection, as Rodney's already read this evening, Jesus comes to his disciples and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Do you know there is nowhere on this planet where Jesus is not God's appointed king? You can paddle up the Ganges or up the River Thames or paddle up the Almond River and when you stop and get out of the boat and ask the question, is Jesus king here? Do you know what the answer is? The answer is yes. Jesus is king here. King over Edinburgh, king over Scotland, king over the world, And he should be the king over your life and my life. And he's worthy of total obedience and humble worship. What a king. Turn to him. Let's pray.
Father, we ask that you would open all of our eyes to see the glory of your Son, King Jesus, and that we may rejoice to find our refuge in him. Lord, give us courage as we head out this week in a world that wants to marginalize us, that we may be people who stand confidently on your gospel, knowing that you are king over the world of finance and law and medicine, universities, factories, shops, over everything that's here. Father, give us confidence to build our lives on this gospel. We ask this in Christ's precious name.